if you want to. All right, I want to see this guy that one week ago had bypass surgery right here in the back. I tell you what, I went through that a year and a half ago, and there's no way I would have been sitting here a week later. God bless you. That is just so wonderful. God bless you. Well, Dallas conned me into uh, doing Bible study tonight. I just drove in from Cincinnati. I want you to know I've been up there and just, just got in. About 6.20, Dallas was starting to worry whether I was going to get here or not, but I'm here. Now, i got to tell you, this is, this is going to be hard for me. I do a series called Roman Through Romans. Okay, that's the name of it. And I take like, you know, I don't, if you've ever been in Bible study with me, it's like to study the book of Romans will take me over a year uh, to do. Dallas did three chapters last week, and he gave me three chapters for tonight. I, I did a study on the book of John one time. We were going to go through the whole book of John. I said, we'll do it in a year. A year went by. I hadn't got out of chapter one yet. Okay? So it's a little different approach. So I'm going to try to speed through a little bit tonight. We're, we're going to look at Romans chapters 4, 5, and 6. We're going to look at a passage from each of those chapters and talk about that. Romans 4, for me, actually goes, through, goes with what Dallas did last week in chapters 1 through, 1 through 3. And by the way, didn't Dallas do an incredible job last week on Romans 1 through 3? It was just wonderful. I remember uh, when my mom passed away, I was talking to one of her friends, and we just got in a conversation, and uh, I said something like, you know, I, I just don't know if mom ever really appreciated. Um, I was a pretty good high school athlete. But I never heard anything from her about that. And, and mom's friend looked at me and said, are you kidding? She bragged about you all the time. She never said it to me, but she said it to everybody else, bragging. So Dallas, I don't want that to happen. I want to brag on you, brother. You did a great job. <laughs> Just a great job last week. Really, really good. All right, so Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read a, a passage. We have the title slide, if we put that up for a second. There you go. I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. Now, there's some old-timey uh, labels for those phrases. I am saved is justification, and Dallas talked about that last week. I am being saved is sanctification. Now, that's a word you don't hear very often in church anymore, but when we look at this passages we're going to look at tonight, sanctification is there. In fact, it talks about being sanctified. It's one of those words we don't use a lot in the church today, and I think it's indicative of where the church is, and I'll back that up in just a moment. The last, I will be saved, this is that time when we pass from this life to the next life, and that's called glorification. So justification, sanctification, and glorification. One of the issues I think the church faces today is we emphasize justification, and we talk about glorification but we don't do very well with sanctification. And we're going to get to that in chapters uh, 5 and 6. So let's read our first passage together in chapter 4. And I don't know, I don't think we necessarily have these on the slide. So if you have your Bibles, there you go, it is up there. If you have your Bibles, it, you can tell I'm old-fashioned, right? If you have your Bibles, even that today, because everybody has their Bible on. Hold that up nice and high. Uh, yeah, on their phones. I remember years ago, I did a, pa uh, a deacon and pastor's conference down in Mer Merville, 
down in Maribel, and it was well attended, and I'm, ta- I'm talking about uh, conflict resolution and how to do that in a church and how to, how to have healthy conflict but yet not destructive conflict. And we're going through that whole evening. When I drove down there, I realized I forgot my Bible at home. And so I had my phone. I brought it up. And so that whole night, I'm quoting Scripture and stuff. After the, the meeting was over, this deacon comes up to me and says, Man, you know a lot of Scripture by memory. didn't tell him the difference I just you know I mean but you know it's back in the early days I haven't on your phone was just not popular then everybody but I still have a Bible I have a Bible here that I've used for years it's really fallen apart parts of it are coming out but this is my preaching and teaching Bible full of notes and now I look at those notes and I'm like what did I mean by that what did I mean by that you know very cryptic Uh, who's got a Bible with them that's fallen apart I want to say something to you you got one over there yeah you know what my mama used to say? A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Right? So, so very good. I don't know if that holds true in my case. I feel like I'm falling apart every day. All right, let's read this passage together. We'll start in Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. So indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now into chapter 4. By the way, chapter and verse divisions didn't come into Scripture until... I mean, literally hundreds of years later. And so some of the decisions about where you divide a chapter, don't, don't just read to the end of the chapter. Read on into the next chapter and make sure it's not part of the context because here I believe it is. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. So we'll stop right there. First of all, let me remind you a couple things about Abraham. Uh, go back to Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We have what's called the Abrahamic covenant. is where God speaks to Abraham and says, look, I want you to pick up. You're living in Ur of the Chaldees, but I want you to pick up from there, and I want you to go to a land I will show you. doesn't tell him where that land is or anything like that, just a land I will show you. And if you do that, here's my promise. My promise is your name will be great, you'll be the father of a great nation, and uh, after that, all the world will be blessed through you. And of course, we believe that happens through Jesus Christ. So that's what's called the Abrahamic covenant. Now the neat thing is, when God says that, I want you to go to a land I will show you, gives that command, the next verse says, and Abraham got up and left. There was no negotiation. There was no doubting what God said. Abraham took God at his promise and acted by faith to move and go to a place that God had even told him where he was going to go yet, to a place I will show you. And then the verse uh, here that it says that it was reckoned, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That comes in Genesis 15, 6. And this is where God tells Abraham, you are going to have a child. Late in life, remember Abraham was 100 and 
Sarah was 90, and I mean, honestly, that was probably harder to believe than go to a land I'll show you, right? But Abraham believed that, and because he believed God, it was reckoned to him righteousness because of the faith that he showed in showed to God. So here's what Paul is doing. Remember the argument, Dallas talked about it very well last week, where Jewish Christians believe you had to have the law, works of the law, and faith in Jesus Christ. And, of course, Gentile Christians never were part of following the law. And for them, it was just faith in Jesus. And so the Jewish Christians were trying to get the Gentile Christians to practice the law, to do the things that are in the law. And so what does Paul do here? He says, well, if the law is so important, let's go all the way back to the start of the Jewish people with Abraham. Was Abraham justified by the law? The law didn't even exist when Abraham was walking around. Was Abraham justified by circumcision, an act of the law? Abraham was not circumcised as a sign of his covenant with God until 14 years after this. So neither the law nor circumcision imparted righteousness to the father of the nation of Israel, to the father of the Jewish people, was not justified by the law at all. He was justified by what? His faith in God. That God said, go, and he went. God said, you're going to have a kid at 100. And he believed God, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. By the way, he had to be from the south because it was reckoned unto him. Right? <laughs> Right? No one else says reckoned unto, except in the King James Version of the Bible and we folks down south. So it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. So Paul uses this argument, said the law is so important, because remember, Paul himself was being attacked for preaching this newfound gospel and was leaving out the law. And, and Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's always been this way. It was this way from the beginning. What happened was Judaism raised the law way above where the law was supposed to be raised and was making the law do things that the law was not made to do. In fact, Paul says, and he says later in, in, in chapter 5, that the law is just a teacher. It is a tutor. It is the law that lets us know that we have failed. It is the law that lets us know that we are sinners because we understand we can't be perfect because we can't keep all the law. I mean, I just look at the Ten Commandments, and brother, I got to tell you, I got a problem with a few of those. I ain't going to tell you which ones. <laughs> all right, but you know that coveting thing? You know that bearing false witness thing? I mean, they get a little tough. And that's just the Ten Commandments. That's just a tiny part of the law. The law lets us know we got a problem, but the law can never cure that problem, right? It takes God to cure that problem. The law lets us know that we're all sinners, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that we have all failed, that if you're guilty of uh, failing one part of the law, you're guilty of failing the whole law. I used to explain it this way. I'd hold up a white piece of paper. I, here, I'll do it this way with you all white piece of paper, and it is perfectly white. But if I put one little mark on it, is it still perfectly white? No, it's imperfect, right? Just one little black mark. So it doesn't matter if it's one little black mark or if I took a marker and just scribbled over the whole thing. Both are imperfect, 
right? And law demands perfection. And brother, just like my English, we ain't perfect. I mean, we're not. I reckon so. I like it. Instead of amen in this church now, people are going to yell out, I reckon so, Dallas. I reckon so. All right. So, so that's, I, I, let's go to the next slide after the verse slide. All right. So we have a choice. There are really two paths in life. One is follow the law. Whether you think you're following the law or not, anytime you base your own merit upon your works, you are following the law. I remember when an evangelism explosion team came and sat in my living room with Pam and I, and they were sharing the gospel. And I don't know if any of you know anything about evangelism explosion. I've been involved in it for a lot of years. And there are two questions you ask people. You know, do you think if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? And I answered yes. And they said, okay, if you stood before God then, why would you tell him that you should, what would you tell him why you should be in heaven? And my answer was, well, if they took the scales and they put good on one side and bad on the other, the good would outweigh the bad. Well, guess what? I was following the law, wasn't I? I was the wrong, I mean, I was lost as a ball in high weeds. I really was. Or in my case, a golf ball in high weeds because I lose seven or eight every, every round I play. So I was following the law. And, of course, we know that the law is impersonal. It's a code. It's a code. We're trying to obey whether it's written for us in the Bible or an unwritten moral code. We're trying to follow a code. That's impersonal. A code can't do anything for you. You can't relate to it. I know some people have a favorite book or something like that, but no matter how much you love your book, you know, your book's not going to love you back. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. I mean... A lot of you love your possessions, and I'll tell you one thing, your possessions are never going to love you back. They're never going to love you back. Only people can love you back. Only persons can love you back. So following law is impersonal, and it is reward-focused. If I do the right things, I earn a reward, right? It's reward-focused. Thirdly, we've said that We'll transgress the law. We're sinners. We, we can't do it. And there's a need for perfection to have a passing grade with the law. And since there's not, then we'll get punishment because we're sinners and we're unredeemed and we're not perfect. And so that punishment is the wrath of God against sin leading to ultimately to death. Now there's another path though. The other path, which was just described with Abraham, is the path of promise. It's where instead of acting upon my moral good, I act upon the promise of God. That we understand that God has said, if we commit to Him in faith, He will never forsake us and never leave us. For me, the greatest promise of God comes right at the end of the Gospels when Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. That that is the biggest promise. Now, some of you might think the biggest promise is heaven someday. Well, I tell you what, the presence of Jesus in this life is the greatest gift you could ever have and enjoy. And guess what heaven's going to be like? Same thing, right? That we will know Jesus and we will know the Father in fullness. In fullness. That's the greatest promise is that God has said that he will never forsake us, never leave us, and that he will always love us. 
Love us. Promise. Promise. Acting upon promise. And so what, what did Abraham do? He believed God. It's a personal thing. It's not about an impersonal law. It's about a person, a being, a God who loves us and promises us that he will always be there for us. That to me is an incredible promise. And so how do we act upon that? First of all, it's personal, it's relationship focused. It's not impersonal like a code or a book. It is we're believing in a being. We're trusting God with our own lives. It's a very relationally focused way of looking at our faith. And so what does that lead to? Faith. And faith is simply what? Trusting God. That's all it is. That's all faith. We make faith so complicated. You know, I, I, I think... I think it is so simple that most of us in our minds can't believe that it is so simple, but yet so profound. And so we try to make it a lot more complicated than it is. Faith is simply trusting God with your life. That's all it is. Now, that sounds easy, right? Well, I trust God with my life. No, that if you're going to trust God with your life, it means you need to give God your life. See, you can't say you trust God with your life and not give God your life to take care of. And I think this is where we go wrong. This is where we struggle. We say we trust God, but we kind of separate it from ourselves. I trust God as long as God's over here. The fact of the matter is, where does God dwell? By God's Spirit. God dwells in here. And I tell you what, we fight that Holy Spirit trying to do what? Take control of our lives every day. Um, Paul later talks about two natures, right? We have our old nature and our new nature. And they're constantly at war with one another inside of us. I like how the old preacher said, it's like having two dogs inside of you fighting. You know which one will win? The one you feed the most. So some of you, your old nature keeps winning because you keep feeding it. Your new nature isn't winning because you're not feeding it enough. You're not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not worshiping, you're not communing, communing with the saints. So, faith is trusting God. Faith is also understanding our need for redemption, that we are sinners. So we trust God, but we do what? We ask God for forgiveness, for God to clean us and give us His righteousness. So what does that lead? It leads to a life of grace. Rather than a, a, a life of uh, impending punishment it leads to a life of grace and what is that life of grace that we have the love of God and we have life in abundance John 10 10 that eventually leads to eternal life the way of the law leads to eternal death the way of promise of God leads to eternal life now I think sometimes we do evangelism wrong we stress so much about law and moral when maybe we should go out and speak more about the promise of God that God has promised he will love you and be with you forever and God has promised he will love you no matter what no matter what and God has promised that if you commit to him he will forgive you of your sins and you'll be cleansed and you get to start again be born anew I mean I don't know about you but whenever I used to run track in high school, and man, if I had a bad start at a race, I was a sprinter, I, I mean, I, just, I was just hoping somebody would fault start 
when I was starting so I would get to try again. I mean, second chances are rare in life. And God gives us the biggest second chance there ever, there ever was. I mean, we get to start again. So the two paths, and what Paul has shown with Abraham is Abraham chose the path of promise. God promised, I'll make you a great nation. Abraham left. I promise you're going to have a child. Abraham believed, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. All right, let's move on. This is crazy to do all this this quickly, but I'm learning new things, Dallas. I'm learning new things. Next slide. Romans chapter, we're going to move into Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 through 8. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have attained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we celebrate in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And can we get an amen? That is a hallelujah moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's go to this next slide because I want to unpack this by looking at the slide. What Paul is talking about in chapter 5 then is what are the results of justification? What are the results of having faith in, in Jesus Christ and having your sins forgiven? What are the results of that? The first and biggest result is peace with God. Peace with God. I mean, Paul says this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I know a lot of people don't think they're an enemy of God. But if you have not been reconciled to God and you're living in a state of unforgiven sin, you are God's enemy. I mean, whether you know it or not, you are hostile to the ways of God and what God wants to happen in this world. You can't help but be that way. You're an enemy of God. And so when you get reconciled with God, the first thing you have is peace with God. I don't know about you, but God got all the power. God got all the authority. If I'm going to have peace with somebody, I want to have peace with God, right? And my wife. I mean, she comes close. I mean, well, I... We'll talk about it later, babe. She's giving me that look like, stop now. You're in trouble. All right. Peace with God. I mean, it is the ultimate good that can happen in our lives is to have peace with God. Because you can't have the peace of God unless you have peace with God. A lot of people are looking for the peace of God without making peace with God. And it will never happen. It's impossible. What what Paul then explains in the rest of this verse, is just incredible. He said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the results, peace of God, are things like 
introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. I don't know about you, but I love that Paul added the words in which we stand. We talk about grace like it's this thing out here that God just gives us every time we mess up. No. Grace is what gives us the motivation to live and walk in life every day. Grace gives us freedom. Grace gives us the opportunity to be who God wants us to be. I I don't think we really understand the word grace. Because what? We live in a world where we all judge everything. Right? And we don't show a lot of grace to each other. So if we don't show a lot of grace to each other, it's hard for us to imagine the all-encompassing grace of God that comes into our lives. You know, some, some have done some studies that a lot of people's view of God is based upon their view of their own father, their earthly father. Man, that's a scary thing. I'm sorry, Dallas. <laughs> I really am. I mean, it is. And most of the time that is authoritarian. It is judgmental. It is strict. When God, in fact, Scripture says it very plainly. People want to know what God is. In the epistles of John, it says God is love. There's no way around that. God is love. And because God is love, then God treats us with grace. And why not? The death of his own son. If that was not enough to pay for our forgiveness for all the sins we'll ever commit, then nothing ever will. We have grace simply because Jesus Christ died for us. And for anybody to believe that we don't have grace to live in and forgiveness for any sin, when Jesus paid the price, any sin you will ever commit in your life is forgiven of you. Now, you may need to make things right with other individuals. You may have your conscience clear, confess that to God. But the fact of the matter is Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Amen? I mean, amen. So, introduction into grace. And then he says, we also celebrate in the hope of the glory of God. Can you, what is the hope of the glory of God? This idea that not only do we stand in grace, but it's future looking in that we have hope. Those who do not have a Savior have no hope. To me, one of the saddest things for me to see is to look out in society around us and see how our society is reacting to the fact that they think when they breathe their last breath, life is over. That there is no hope beyond death. There is no hope. It is so sad to see people in quiet resignation live their lives with no joy. I tell you, one of the hardest things today for me to adjust to, probably one of the reasons I'm retiring early next year, is the fact that there's not a lot of joy out there anymore. We can't kid with each other. We can't joke around. We can't be kind to one another unless we agree on everything. Who said you had to agree on everything to be kind to one another? Huh? No way. I mean, we don't, we, you know, I mean, I can be kind to a complete stranger. And they may be just totally opposite of who I am. Doesn't matter. I can still be kind. There's just not a lot of joy out there. Well, the joy is the hope of glory. The glory is that someday we will know God for who he is in person, right there. I don't know what that means. I have no idea. But if the glimpse I got now is any indication, oh my goodness, it's going to be incredible. It reminds me of the, I, I hate to, 
I'm going to tell the story just quick. All right. I mean, I know he's like looking at that watch. He's probably texting down to the people watching the children. My dad is speaking tonight. I'm sorry, guys. All right. So, so there was a, a black preacher and a white preacher that constantly argued about whether God was white or black. In fact, one day, they were arguing so badly, they were driving to a conference together that they ran off the road, got in an accident, and they both got killed. So the next thing they know, they're in heaven. And man, they're just amazed at everything. It's just incredible. They're looking at the pearly gates they just came through. They're looking at how magnificent it is. And then all at once, they hear a big trumpet. And somebody's yelling, God is coming, God is coming. And all of a sudden, they just looked at each other like, yeah, we're going to find out now. And so they walk up, and God comes around the corner. And before they could say anything, God goes, Que pasa? <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Forgive me for that one. All right. And then the next thing that Paul says, not only joy and the hope of a place called heaven and being with God and knowing God in fullness, but he also says, here's another place we can have joy. And this is the tough one. And not only this, we also celebrate in our tribulations. See, we'll celebrate one day when we're in heaven. That's an easy one. But what do we do between now and then? And Paul says, we can celebrate in our tribulations because we know that tribulations, as long as you have faith in God, brings perseverance, patience. I mean, it's the tough times that teach us how to be patient, isn't it? Right? So my wife should have, be the most patient person in the world. I can tell you that. All right? And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. That we know we can work through these things. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because of the love of of God the love of God the abundance of God's love through the Holy Spirit as we go through life I don't see how people can go through life without the presence of God and God's love in their lives I mean they have no hope they have no joy we can have joy in the midst I'm not saying happiness we go oh look at me I'm, I'm really sick I have a terminal illness no but we have a joy in knowing that nothing nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Neither death, nor life, nor depth, nor height. Nothing. And I tell you what, I mean, honestly, knowing that should give us a peace in the midst of tribulation that others don't have. Remember in Disciples, the boat was about to go down, and they looked for Jesus. Where was Jesus? Do you remember that story? He was sleeping in the bottom of the boat lord don't you care we're about to perish and jesus you know i'm jesus so many times jesus i think just wanted to go bap, bap, bap. what is wrong with you guys because jesus knew what he was loved by the father he had peace in the midst of the storm that we should have as as well all right let's do the last passage real quick all right i, I just i oh boy it's a long read though Ah. Well, I've got to read it all, though. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? So here comes the argument. Justification by faith. It's by grace. And so Paul is anticipating 
the naysayers. Now, some of you know what a naysayer is because you are. Right? There's some of you that every time someone says something, you're looking for the hole in it. It's just your nature. I, you can't help it. I'm sorry. Okay? You can't help it. There are naysayers. Right? There are people that, it, well, thank God for them because sometimes they find some holes we need to fix. Right? But you don't need to naysay all the time. Okay? I'll just, I'll just say that. All right? I'm the eternal optimist. You know, people say glass half full, half empty. I'm just glad we have a glass. Right? <laughs> Right? We're blessed. We have a glass. So what should we say? And so the naysayers would say, okay, well, if grace is everything, then it doesn't matter how we live. We can sin all we want to. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, For one who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then I couldn't leave out the end of the chapter because 623 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. So I'm just throwing this in. This is extra. It won't cost you a nickel. might cost you 10 minutes, but it won't cost you a nickel. Okay. But now you having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, let's go to the last. This is the last slide, I promise. Last slide. So, the people who were asking, in fact, even some practiced. In fact, if you know the story of Rasputin, you know that he kind of encouraged people to sin because that meant there would be more forgiveness and more grace from God. Could you imagine, I mean, I love my kids. I really love my kids. But could you imagine them always doing things that upset me so that I could forgive them and hug them afterwards? Now, Pam and I will fight once in a while just so we can make up. But that's our own little game. Okay, that's, that's, a, different, that's a different thing. All right? Dallas hates it every time I say that. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, but... But I mean, we, that, is so, that is so presumptuous upon the love of God. You know, I, I, someone said it this way. God loves everybody. God does. God even loves those who have not given themselves to God, who have not trusted Him. God loves everybody. So God loves some people with the love that makes God glad. And God loves pe- some people with the love that makes God sad. Right? And as a parent, you understand, if you're a parent, you understand that well, right? And so anybody that would ask that question 
are practicing what is called licentiousness. I have a license to sin because I walk in grace. It's forgiven. What kind of respect does that show to God? What kind of love does that show of God? It, it shows that we're taking advantage of God's love and grace. It is, I can do what I want to do. But what that is, is cheap grace. Cheap grace. Cheap grace. Cheap grace. If you want, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. And when he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is forgiveness without repentance. That's cheap grace, right? You get forgiveness, but you never change the way you live. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace is what we give ourselves. It's this, I can do whatever I want to do because I walk in grace. That's cheap grace. No, it's costly grace. It costs Jesus his life upon the cross, right? It's costly grace because we are called to give up our lives, to die when we are buried with him in baptism and resurrected to walk in newness of life, it says that we died to our old nature. It is costly grace because we have to give our life in that calling. And we are called to follow. That is costly. you got to drop what you get. But it's grace because who are we following? We're following Jesus. It, 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 it shows that a person is still enslaved to one's sinfulness and it leads to death. It, what it really means is you've never really been justified to begin with. If you think you just live in grace and you can live any way you want, you've never understood the great price that was paid for your salvation. You've never understood it. But the other way, though, is sanctification. I can now do what God wants me to do, something I couldn't do before I knew God and the Holy Spirit indwelt me. I am free to do what God wants me to do and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. It's costly grace. We understand that we're not going to take advantage of God's love and grace. That when we do, it breaks our heart. You know, the best children to raise are the ones that behave not because of the rules, but because they're afraid they're going to disappoint you. Isn't it? Now, come on, parents. You understand. Isn't that the truth? Isn't it? Not rules keepers, but the ones that are afraid to disappoint you. And honestly, we should love God with that same kind of heart. That we are going to do the right things because we don't want to disappoint God. And what is that? That means we're enslaved to His righteousness. Not ours, but His righteousness. Not our own. And that leads eventually to eternal life. All right. I'm done. I have never covered three chapters in my life in this amount of time. But anyway, thank you all. Please go. Need your 